So I was reading, uh, I really like uh, 19th century kind of Victorian Gothic literature. I'm a big fan of like Frankenstein and Dracula and books like that. And I was reading th- some Arthur Machen. And uh, so he's another one of these kind of Gothic type writers. And there were two characters in the story that I was reading a short story. One was a very scientific character, uh, was an anthropologist or something like that. And then the other one was, you know, this literary figure and they're trying to figure out some mystery and the scientific character in it was continually just denying any, any chance that there could be anything supernatural about what they were looking into. And so then at one point, one of the characters says to the other, extreme skepticism is mere credulity. Extreme skepticism is mere credulity. And so that word credulity, uh, just because we don't use it a whole lot, right? Uh, Webster's Dictionary definition, it's a tendency to be too ready to believe that something is real or true. So a lot of times the the argument is made that religious people, they're just too ready to believe something uh, is true, right? Uh, Without any good evidence to back it up. And so this author was making the exact opposite point that you can be such a strong skeptic that there won't be enough evidence in any way, shape or form to make you change your mind, right? You are just too willing to want to hold on to your skeptical beliefs that you're not ready to, to embrace uh, the actual historical context and the evidence for maybe what it is that you're looking at. And this is all just kind of to remind ourselves the kind of situation where this might come up is I've seen it several times now. It's become very in vogue, especially in kind of apologetics, Christian atheism debates today for the uh, atheist to say that they are a proponent of methodological naturalism and methodological naturalism is uh, it's described as the kind of position that a scientist has when they go about doing their work, where they are going to assume while they're doing their work, that there is no supernatural explanation for what they're observing. They're trying to come up with a natural explanation for it. And it makes a lot of sense if you're a scientist trying to figure out, you know, physics and gravity and things like that. Um, but this argument is often used by atheists to say, um, I'm going to approach the world like a scientist through the lens of methodological naturalism. And so I am always going to defer to a naturalistic explanation for everything. But what that often turns into during the debates is there is absolutely nothing that you could present to the person where they would say, hmm, well, maybe there's something outside of science that could explain this, right? Or outside of of naturalism that could explain this to the point where I think I mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks back, maybe a couple months back, there was one debate where the Christian was saying, well, let's say he's debating an atheist. Let's say, you know, someone gets their head chopped off. You watch them get their head chopped off. And the very next day they're there talking to you. Would you at some point there just concede that it's possible that there's something outside of a naturalistic explanation? And the response was, no, I would still withhold judgment and think that there would be a scientific explanation somewhere down the road, right? And I'm just bringing this up to suggest that there are two extremes here. And what we want to be able to do, and most of our friends and family, they're not in these extremes. They're usually somewhere kind of in the middle. And I think we should be somewhere in the middle of this as well. And when we're talking about the historicity of the Christian faith, on the one hand, there's gonna be the fact that the Holy Spirit's created solid faith in our hearts. 
So we don't need, on a certain level, much of any of the historical background that we're talking about here in order for us to be saved, right? But what it is useful for is to be able to show, look, there is a historical context to the Bible and to the accounts in the Bible. And if we just step back and think about this and kind of look and see how the accounts of the Bible line up with history, then this should be something that should make you give pause when a Christian says, this is what I believe, and maybe something off, goes off in your head right away. Well, that's impossible. Well, let's just pause for a minute. Let's just look and see whether or not this is quite the fantastical, mythical book that you think that it is. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at how the Old Testament books have been preserved, the transmission of the text and things like that, and it's specifically for this purpose, so that you're able to say to your friends, let's just pause for a minute. This is not the book that you think it is. Um, there is a historical context that clearly shows that this book was written when it claimed to be written, um, that it was transmitted reliably. And so what we're holding in front of us is something that is good testimony of what people saw and heard in the past. And so with that, we've been working through this series, then the light and the dark. This is the way that uh, Peter in his second letter calls scripture. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so there you've got scripture being called this light that's shining in a dark place. And that's what you and I have today when we are holding God's word is we have this light that's shining in a dark world, a world darkened by sin, death, our own sinful natures, right? Um, and so that book that we have here, what's amazing that what we're studying is how God has preserved this light through the ages for us this light in a fallen sinful world that desperately needs its message for a savior, God has preserved that for us. And we are the recipients of God preserving that light. Here's some of the subjects then. Just real quick overview again. Uh, we started with what does the Bible claim about itself? We talked about where did the Old Testament come from, canon formation. We'll touch on a couple more things there. Uh, was the Old Testament preserved? We'll maybe get into that subject today. Then we'll get into the New Testament. Where did the New Testament come from? Was the New Testament preserved? Uh, then we'll talk about these um, other issues about texts outside of the Bible that sometimes people ask, well, why aren't these part of the Bible? And so we'll look at the Apocrypha and then also the Pseudepigrapha. The Pseudepigrapha are books like the Lost Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and things like that from, from movies like uh, Da Vinci Code that have popularized them. And so this is what we talked about last time. What's so special about Scripture? Um, the very first time we got together and talked about it, Scripture claims about itself in Scripture, the writers themselves, that the Old Testament is God's word, every bit of it. The New Testament is God's word, every bit of it. The Bible has divine authority, so it is the highest authority that you and I have in our lives. Um, it has divine power, so it is a powerful book. When you are sharing law and gospel with someone. The Holy Spirit is doing divine work through that. There is something more going on than just simply sounds being received into the ears of someone and processed in their brain. There is a deeper reality to what's taking place. And then we said the Bible is sufficient. It is all that you need for salvation. Um, there is nothing outside of the Bible that you can go to for salvation. Uh, so that's what we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient. 
We talked last time then about, uh, so how do we know that the Old Testament is God's word? For us as Christians, we first and foremost, we look at that internal evidence. In fact, this is really what matters most to us. Everything else is icing on the cake. The internal evidence is what matters most. The first thing we said is it's self-authenticating. So in other words, you read scripture and what does scripture do? It creates faith in your heart, right? It creates faith in your heart that Jesus is your savior, that he is who he claims he is. And so in that sense, we say it's self-authenticating. And so this ties back into the idea that it is a divine book and there is something divine taking place when we, when we read it, when we share it with people, when we raise our families in it. Uh, Jesus calls them God's word. So we looked at lots of passages where Jesus himself refers to scripture as God's word, where he treats it like God's word. And then finally, we saw how the apostles themselves call uh, the Bible God's word as well. So in other words, the Bible itself is what uh, treats uh, and calls itself God's word. Uh, the authors were especially concerned about that Jesus figure there, calling it God's word. But there's also external evidence that we talked about. So if we want to say, does the Bible fit into the context that it comes from? We talked about historical details corroborating with known history. So we talked about things like uh, different steelies that were discovered and um, the uh, tunnel of Hezekiah, things like that. The grammar of each book matches the right time. So when the books were, when we say this book or when the author in the book says this book was written in this time period, the grammar and the language, the vocabulary that's used at that time, it matches that. And we'll see in a minute why this is pretty amazing when we think about it. And then we can't underscore enough the Dead Sea Scrolls as an important discovery showing that uh, for 900 years of history, at least, the Old Testament had been faithfully preserved. So do these historic, historical evidence prove that the Old Testament is God's word? No, we're not interested in proving that the Old Testament is God's word, <laughs> right? Uh, what proves the Old Testament is God's word? the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament and that's what creates faith in your heart. But these are evidences and we are interested in being able to say, look, this is where our Bible comes from and it does fit the historical context that it comes from. And so again, the way that we described this last time is what we're kind of talking about here. These external evidences, they're good signs. We want to share them because they will point towards the truth, right? In the same way, that John talked about signs in his gospel. So there was this uh, small group of books in the Old Testament that were called antilegomena. So we had prolegomena and antilegomena. You remember those terms? Prolegomena are books of the Bible that really were never disputed at all at any point uh, by the body of believers as being part of the Bible. There are a category of books, though, that we call antilegomena. And what this means is that these are books that at some point there were some scribes, uh, theologians that said, I'm not too sure if this fits in the Bible. So let's say one of your non-Christian friends quotes one of these uh, authors and says, see, not everyone thinks these books belong in the Bible. Should this rattle our faith in any way, shape, or form? Well, this is what we have to say about the Old Testament antilegomena. Well, treat the New Testament antilegomena differently. Uh, <coughs> such a major gap of time between the two that we're going to treat them a little bit differently. But let's look at the Old Testament right now. 
we'll take a look at some of the books of the Bible that people in the past have said, I don't know if this belongs in the Bible. And we'll just real quickly kind of go through a couple of the points on that. So throughout the Old Testament, rabbis at times raised issues with certain books of the Old Testament, not seeming to fit in with the others as canonical. This was always a minority view. So we need to kind of stretch, stress this. There was never a point where any of these books that we're going to talk about that the majority of Hebrew religious leaders said it should not go in the Bible. It was always a minority view, okay? And at major councils and events, for example, the Council of Jamnia, which is a very famous council where uh, the canonical books were listed, these books were always included in the canon. The proposed conflicts and biblical resolutions are sketched out. So Esther is uh, one of the more kind of famous books in the Old Testament that every now and then you can find a rabbi in the past uh, say, this shouldn't be in the Bible. So Esther is a wonderful book, right? It's a wonderful book that takes place during the uh, period of the Babylonian captivity. And it involves a lot of historical figures at that time. And so the question is, well, why should this book of the Bible not be part of it? Well, this is kind of interesting. Esther never directly mentions or names God. So the word God, as in, you know, the Tetragrammaton, Jehovah, or Adonai, or any of the Hebrew words for God, it never appears anywhere in the Bible, in, in this book of the Bible. And there isn't really any real strong point in it where God is strongly inferred, right, in some way. So, should this be something that rattles our case? Well, the vast majority of Jewish scholars throughout all time, except for the minority that kind of question it, um, and all of us New Testament Christians today, Esther's theme is clearly God's providence. So if you were to ask, well, what's the point of the book of Esther? What's kind of the theme? What's the purpose of this book actually being in the canon? It's very clear what it is. It's about God preserving the people of Israel. And this is one way that he did it. It's also a very short book, right? It's not a very long one. And so in that very short book, it very clearly shows how God has been laying these plans very clearly so that the children of Israel are preserved in the captivity and can come back uh, for the sake of the Messiah. So um, Esther's theme is clearly God's providence behind the scenes, as in other books of the same time period. So Ezra and Nehemiah are very similar in this as well. Um, other books of the uh, Babylonian captivity and the return, the history books of those period. Uh, God's providence is an unavoidable part of Mordecai's faith. So despite the fact that this book of the Bible does not directly mention the name of God, this is one of the favorite books of the Old Testament to have Bible studies on. <laughs> Why? Because it's just such a useful book for showing God's providence and how God takes care of us through times of difficulty. So that's Esther. Um, when we kind of go through them, if you got any questions about the individual books, definitely ask. So Solomon, the figure of Solomon, his books have been kind of interesting. So Solomon, if you remember, he's the son of David. He was famous for his wisdom. And in his wisdom, he has given us three books of wisdom, uh, books that are basically types of uh, wisdom books for different periods in life. Those three books are Proverbs, which has to do with practical wisdom, right? Living wisdom. Uh, Song of Songs, which has to do with relationships. 
And then Ecclesiastes, which I would describe as having to do more with this idea of kind of philosophical wisdom or kind of looking back at life, existential wisdom uh, type of work. And what's interesting is that all three of these books, at some point, a Jewish scholar, rabbi has said, I don't know if these belong in the Bible. So here are some of the reasons uh, for the book of Proverbs. Every now and then, you can find two Proverbs that absolutely, literally contradict each other. They say the exact opposite things. So here's one example. Proverbs uh, seems to contradict itself in places. For example, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. That's Proverbs 26, verse 4. Proverbs 26, verse 5, the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So the first one says, don't answer a fool. The second verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. That seems just straight up contradictory, right? If you're just kind of reading it right off the page. So scholars have said, this just can't possibly be the word of God if you have this kind of clear contradiction taking place within it. Well, what do we do about this? Well, we know that circumstances often determine how one ought to answer a fool. And this is usually the case with these different Proverbs is that they're not referring to uh, some kind of binding statement for all situations, but instead these are bits of wisdom that are useful for very general spheres or encounters or circumstances that you find yourself in. And so we know there are circumstances that often determine how we ought to answer a fool, yet the general principles outlined by each proverb are complementary. Fools often don't deserve an answer, yet answering fools appropriately can humble them, right? There's really no conflict when you think of it in those terms, right? All of Solomon's supposed contradictions are like this. They're wise statements that understood rightly complement each other. And that's why the editors of the book of Proverbs put these two Proverbs together, right? Or Solomon wrote them one right after the other. It's because they were meant to go together. They were meant to be complementary Proverbs. So that's the book of Proverbs. Uh, Song of Songs. So Song of Songs, it is very sensual. So if you read it, there are places where the Hebrew poetry is clearly uh, describing uh, uh, sexual acts and things like that. And there's a lot of romance and there's a lot of courting and a lot of this kind of flowery romantic poetry going on throughout the entire thing. And uh, in the midst of all of it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of these kind of clear theological messages. It seems to just be a giant poem about love and relationships. So some rabbis have said, I don't know if this belongs in the Bible. It seems just a little too explicit. It just seems a little bit too on the nose for relationships. Um, so that's kind of an interesting take on it. But this is what the majority of uh, Jewish scholars in the past and believers today believe, although sensual, its application to marriages is very biblical and ought to be celebrated. This would be a very useful book of the Bible in a culture like ours today that is absolutely obsessed with wrong understandings of sex uh, and their contexts. And here we've got a book of the Bible that just tackles that head on and shows a beautiful biblical picture of it. Um, sometimes you'll find, uh, you'll find theologians in the past that have said, well, maybe it's not supposed to be 
something that's really about relationships. Maybe it's supposed to be an analogy of Christ and the church. And so in that sense, um, it can certainly be used as an analogy. The actual book itself seems to be putting this forward as a description of romantic relationships, but it's used as an analogy for Christ and the church at times. And it was one of the most quoted books of the Bible during the medieval era. So um, there's definitely lots of good Christian use for this book as well. So, so that's his first two. And then Solomon's last one, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes seems overly pessimistic, as well as seems at points to deny an afterlife. And the key here is that it, we have to focus on the word seems uh, at times to deny an afterlife. It's very difficult Hebrew, uh, what the book of Ecclesiastes is written in, and it's, very, it's using very strange figures of speech throughout it, and it definitely is a very strange project that Solomon is going about doing here. But we can say this about it. Ecclesiastes is unique in its honesty of what life is like without God, and so it is at times utterly depressing. If you are describing what life without God is like, should that be an upper? You know, as a book of the Bible, this just hits the, the subject right on the nose, right? Just how meaningless life is when you are looking at things under the sun apart from there being a good God that's, uh, that is in control of all things, right? And so this makes Ecclesiastes invaluable, I think, as a tool for evangelists and, and apologists interacting with our own godless society. Further, Solomon, the author, writes about death, as other Old Testament writers do, including David. So the ways that he talks about death, they're not unique in the Old Testament. And that physical death is indeed an end of sorts, right? Yet Solomon teaches the soul returns to God at death. All this to say, I think this is not a bad book at all for uh, Bible study. <laughs> In fact, we have spent months on Ecclesiastes ourselves uh, studying it as well. And there might be a good book or two out there on Ecclesiastes that could help you understand it. Just not in the dead of winter. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Make sure that you've got uh, plenty of uh, vitamin D while you are uh, reading Ecclesiastes. So those are the books of Solomon, his wisdom literature. And all three of them have been under attack at some point. And we can very easily see how all three of them not only belong in the Old Testament canon, but are invaluable in that Old Testament canon as, uh, as things that really kind of round out the use of the Old Testament in our lives. Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is pretty interesting. Big, giant book of prophecy. We'll talk a little bit more about Ezekiel uh, when we start our next chapter. Ezekiel promotes ceremonies and sacrifices that contradict the ceremonies and sacrifices commanded to Moses by God. So if you read Ezekiel, you'll all of a sudden find prophecies where uh, God is telling Ezekiel to do, uh, to do sacrifices and to build structures that are very different than what God had commanded them to do on Mount Sinai. So what's going on there? So for example, there is a description of what the temple should look like. And the temple that's described by, by Ezekiel, or that God tells Ezekiel, it is fantastically different than the temple that you have in, uh, in um, than the tabernacle setup or the temple that's uh, being built by Solomon. 
doesn't look anything like Herod's temple later on. In fact, the structure is just massively huge, and it's got all these strange proportions that you don't find anywhere else. And so if you are thinking that Ezekiel's prophecies are meant to be taken literally, um, then you've got a problem here because this contradicts things. But if you recognize that the way Ezekiel's prophecies are being given to him are just like the other prophecies that we have at times that God gives his uh, Old Testament prophets using very symbolic language, especially when it comes to numbers and, uh, and geography and things like that. This was meant not to be directions for something that you should physically build, but instead it was meant to be a vision of what the next kingdom was going to be like and like what heaven would be like and things like that. So there were some very clear prophetic reasons that these were given to uh, Ezekiel to give to the people. So Ezekiel is clearly describing a new age in symbolic terms. His vision was meant to describe a reality to come and not yet present, not yet present in his time. And so as soon as you realize that this is prophecy that's doing exactly what a lot of prophecy does, talking about a deep future in very symbolic language, like lions laying down with lambs and things like that, then we have no problems at all with what Ezekiel is writing. Instead, it becomes the deepest comfort possible when we get to see the beautiful um, the beautiful future that God has in store for us, but understanding that beautiful uh, future in symbolic terms, kind of like uh, Revelation, right, or Daniel's visions, things like that. So, yeah, and there's big ties. Yeah, Karen mentions there's big ties between the Book of Revelation and and uh, Ezekiel as well. There's 31 references, um, and that might not be 31 direct references, but where the language completely mirrors uh, Ezekiel. So phrases that you find in Ezekiel, such as we're gonna be talking about the eating of a scroll. This is something that is in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel to eat a scroll that he writes down. And what do we have in the book of Revelation? But uh, John is commanded at one point to eat a scroll. And so you've got very similar, um, if not identical, images that are used between those two books. Yeah, good.